0: Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and over the past 12 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.eckery.org. We're recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice, and encourage all of you to practice, good social distancing to help limit the spread of COVID. Today's episode is part of ECRI's ongoing response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll discuss the importance of respiratory protection programs in aging services provider organizations nursing homes have recently been assessed millions of dollars in fines for failing to have effective respiratory protection programs in place. We'll look at what the rules require, why nursing homes may struggle to comply, and answer some questions we've gotten from our member organizations. To get us started, I'll ask our two guests to introduce themselves.
1: My name is Maureen Casson, and I am the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at ECRI.
2: This is Jean Harple, and I am the Operations Manager of the Aging Services Department at ECRI.
0: So, Maureen, I'll I'll look to you to get us started. Um, I mentioned in the beginning that we're starting to see OSHA uh, implement some fines for failure to comply with the Respiratory Protection Standard. Um, Can you outline some of the basic requirements uh, of that standard and, you know, maybe talk about a little bit about why it's in place? Who does it protect? Okay.
1: First, I'll mention that the standard really um, states that the employers develop a written site-specific plan if there's any risk that the employees are gonna come in contact with a respiratory hazard. And in general terms, the plan outlines the safety needs, determines which equipment's appropriate and documents um, the needs and their plan. So the plan's developed to protect not only the healthcare personnel, but anybody who's gonna come in contact with a potentially hazard of respiratory pathogen. This could include, in, in addition to the personnel, security, food service, environmental services. So it's very, very important to determine who's gonna need protection and what protection's appropriate to the situation.
0: So, you know, Maureen, if, if, the, if the, the, you know, the individual sites have to have a, a site-specific written respiratory protection program, um, what, what are some of the key elements that are going to have to be represented in that plan?
1: Well, the first step in developing a respiratory protection plan is really cho- choosing a respiratory protection administrator. This is an individual who is willing to oversee and develop this plan. There's no special training that's required, but they really have to be committed to developing this plan and changing it as needed along the way. There should be one specific person in charge to maintain the cohesion and um, the consistency of the plan. If the healthcare system has a number of different campuses, uh, it's reasonable to have one person per campus. The uh, first step in developing the plan, the administrator conducts what we call a hazard assessment. So the administrator looks at who's performing what duty and is there a hazard associated with that duty? Um, This is documented in a form. And if any hazards are found, the next step is to determine what is the appropriate equipment. If it's determined that respirators are appropriate to the, the airborne hazard, then the employee is going to need to have a medical evaluation prior to fit testing. Uh, a lot of people are surprised to hear this, um, but the medical evaluation is really important in making sure that the employee is able to tolerate the respiratory equipment that's necessary. Some medical conditions, such as some breathing problems, claustrophobia, anxiety, may make it very difficult for certain employees to tolerate um, fitted respiratory equipment. The the medical exam uh, starts with a questionnaire, then a brief medical exam, and the findings are documented including are they able to use respiratory equipment or do some changes need to be made or are they unable to tolerate it altogether? Um, Following medical testing, the employee will get what we call fit testing. And this is a, a series of maneuvers to make sure that they are able to wear a mask with a tight seal. If the seal is not tight, then there's going to be inadequate protection the findings of this fit testing are documented and the fit testing needs to be repeated annually. A failure to repeat the fit testing annually is a big area um, where fines are levied. In addition to all this, there's training uh, in the use and storage of dispo- and disposal of this equipment and all these um, training sessions have to be documented. So there's a lot of record keeping that goes into the respiratory protection plan, but it's very important and these documents need to be accessible to OSHA on request. Um, another thing that is included in the written documentation is any exposures to, pay, to uh, employees and the mitigation steps taken. Um, to make sure these exposures don't happen to anybody else. Um, Finally, the administrator really needs to to solicit feedback from the employees. They may find that uh, upon questioning the employees are having a difficult time with the respirators, they're not using them properly, or they've forgotten the training that they received months prior. The, any revisions that are made um, because of this feedback should be documented. Now, OSHA doesn't really outline how often the respiratory plan should be revised, but ECRI recommends at least annually.
0: Okay, and, and Jean, let me bring you in. You know, we've discussed historically nursing homes maybe haven't been, um, I'll say, maybe they haven't been as attentive to the rule as say uh, folks in hospital settings have been. Is that, is that a fair characterization? And if it is, how come?
2: Yeah, you're right, Paul. Um, typically um, in nursing homes, they just haven't done this type of respiratory protection program. And that's because um, when N95s were needed, it was usually for a very specific type of infection in which if they had it, they would transfer that resident out to the hospital and then let the hospital um, treat their residents. But now with COVID, you know, this has all changed and the COVID positive residents and even those who are suspected with COVID are not going to the hospitals but they're staying with them in their in their units. Um, so, you know, they do want to be compliant. Um, it's just, this is like uncharted waters for them.
0: Hmm. no, that makes sense. If it's not, you know, a, a kind of, you know, uh, you talked about, Maureen, the, the hazard assessment that they've had to do. This is a new hazard that certainly wouldn't have shown up on a hazard assessment, say, in October of 2019. Um, it just wasn't on their radar to deal with this. Um, you know, I mentioned in the opening that we're seeing a lot of fines being levied against nursing homes f- related to the respiratory uh, protection standard. Um, and, Maureen, you mentioned that a big area we see where, where traditionally folks get caught up is doing that annual Refit testing. Um, what kind of violations are we seeing now uh, against nursing homes with regard to the protection stand, the respiratory protection?
2: So, if you don't mind, I'll take this one, Paul. Um, just on Friday, the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Safety and Health Administration announced on Friday that they have levied three point four million dollars worth of fines against operators and many of them are senior living providers, of course. And as Maureen did mention, they've been cited for failing to implement written respiratory protection programs, failing to provide that medical evaluation for their um, staff, the uh, respirator fit test and training on the proper use and failing to report an injury, illness or fatality. Those are the main areas where they're being fined.
0: And I know, you know, Gene, that we're seeing a lot of questions come in from uh, our various member uh, provider organizations um, who are, you know, uh, like you said, they're certainly trying to comply. They want to comply. (laughs) Um, So it's not for lack of interest in it. Um, But I thought we could go through a couple of those questions and answers and um, Maureen and Gene both, maybe you could share uh, some, some of the advice we would give to somebody who has a question like this. And let's start with fit testing, um, which we've mentioned a couple of times now. So maybe to start, um, Maureen, can you describe maybe in a little bit more detail what fit testing is? Um, you know, who does it, how it works. If, if I was working in a nursing home and they told me you need to go through fit testing, um, you know, what, what would that, what would, what would happen to me?
1: Fit testing is actually a really simple and quick procedure. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes. There are two different types of fit testing called quantitative and qualitative. I won't go into all the details because really in the healthcare setting, we're mostly talking about N95 respirators and that tends to be what we call a qualitative fit test. The tester, puts a large loosely fitting hood over the employee and there's a little valve and they spritz a chemical that has like a strong smell to it. One of the examples is bananas. Um, The employee without a mask verifies that they can smell the banana or the saccharin or whatever the test chemical is. And then they put the mask on. And the point is that you're not supposed to be able to detect the scent if the mask is fitting properly. And it may be that the mask needs to be readjusted or sized up uh, and then the test repeated until you cannot smell the test chemical. You go through various uh, motions like moving your head side to side. You read a passage that they hand you and you bend over at the waist just to make sure with day-to-day activities, there is no leak. Now the the person who does the testing really doesn't need any special training. They just have to be able to make the test solution, um, calibrate the equipment and perform the tests properly according to the instructions.
2: Um, a great point about so you don't have to be have any particular training and that some of our communities have hired outside vendors to come in and and perform this testing for their staff and others are finding that it's um, a little bit easier to train their infection prevention person or a staff member and then conduct the testing themselves um, at um, right on site instead of waiting for an outside vendor to come in and, and do it.
0: So, A, I'll, I'll confess that I, I really don't like bananas, so I'm glad to hear that there's finally a good use for them. Um, but also, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, Maureen, um, that we, we need to redo the fit testing annually. Um, how come? Does, my, does the shape of my face change that much from year to year?
1: It may. Uh, sometimes, depending on mm-hmm. weight changes, the mask may mm-hmm. need to be adjusted. The rule of thumb is any change greater than 10 pounds should alert the employee that they need fit testing. Other things such as cosmetic surgery, change in dentures, facial scarring, they may um, cause the seal to be insufficient. I will also mention a big bone of contention is facial hair. And CDC has a chart of acceptable facial hair, facial hair and unacceptable. And this includes beards, mustaches, sideburns, and it's often necessary for the employees to remove all facial hair in order to get a tight seal.
0: Yeah. I'm just sort of envisioning, you know, sort of the, the, the the literally the foot the the footprint the geography on my face where a seal would fit, and sure any kind of facial hair is gonna um you know is gonna affect that that makes sense
1: even razor stubble can break the seal
0: sure okay so uh okay, so we've checked off bananas and get a better razor so far today yes. <laughs> um Let's let's move away from from fit testing a little bit. We got a couple other questions I want to address that, that we got in from some some of our provider organizations. Gene, this one fascinated me. They they shared with us an article about um, using electronic cookers, uh, instant pots, to disinfect N95 masks. Um, what's our take on on that? Where we are we recommending that?
2: Yeah, it was it, that was an interesting question, wasn't it? So you know you would never think. Um, Prior to COVID, that we would be looking at ways to decontaminate uh, respirators between uses, so to speak. You would just you would discard them, and and, and get a clean one out. But with shortages in PPE, um, looking for ways to decontaminate them has been a, a big, big area of uh, a big issue for for provider organizations. So. Um, This article came out and one of our members asked us about it and so here's our take. Um, No, (laughs) and here's why. Most Instapots can get a temperature of hundred degrees Celsius and that's really higher than the dry heat temperature that's been proposed and and tested in some of the studies that we've seen. Um, And so you could have degradation of the mask especially after one or more um, decontamination times that you're doing it. So it's just kind of risky we're not sure if the mask would actually withstand that high of heat. So there are other methods to decontaminating masks. And at this time we would think that those are better alternatives. So that's suggested uh, vaporized hydrogen peroxide and UV light are two um, ways that are acceptable.
0: And then the last uh, question I wanted to bring up here was um, you know, about sort of the applicability of the respiratory protection standard. And, and I think this is a really, you know, if I'm in a healthcare setting in, in, a, in a nursing home and a provider organization that really has not implemented this broadly and fully in the past, um, this can seem a little bit overwhelming. And, and I think the question that came in was, um, you know, does, the, does the standard apply to all areas of the nursing home or just those areas where we would normally be using an N ninety-five mask? I'm curious what our what our guidance is to, to folks in that situation.
2: So where you're gonna wear an N ninety five is again only in the areas where you have residents who are either COVID positive or suspected for COVID. Um, posit- positivity. They're in, you know, in the holding room, if you will, waiting on um, back on their results. So that's where you would want to wear an N95, and those are the areas that would need to wear an N95. The, the people that would be te- that would need to be fit tested would be anyone who goes into those areas. So certainly any of your healthcare um, personnel who are taking care of those residents, as well as any ancillary staff that might be coming in. So maybe dining, uh, maybe facilities, maybe housekeeping. So anyone who would be going into what we'll call the COVID unit would need to wear an N95. And therefore that is where you have to have your respiratory protection program um, initiated. Now, should you not have respiratory protection um, throughout the entire community? Well, yes, that's the answer is yes, but they don't have to wear N95s in the whole community. But you do need to know when do you wear, when do you wear a regular mask, when do you need an N95? And so that's why I want to say it's more of a comprehensive across your entire organization, but specifically um, knowing when to wear the N95. Um, and that would really just be where right now, where we have COVID-positive patients.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly, I'm imagining a scenario where um, right people have COVID before I know they have COVID. So, um, you, you know, I, I, you've got residents in their rooms or on you know different areas of the organization before they get tested and before they get brought in for that. You know, but in theory, uh, folks who are around them are still at some level of risk. Uh, we just don't know it yet.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a great. That's an excellent point. The, these these masks should not be. Um, these respirators, if you will, should not be worn by by the residents.
1: I would like to bring up one quick point in that it's really not appropriate for the residents to be wearing N95s or their visitors. It really, they really should be reserved for people who have an identified hazard, have had the medical exam and have undergone fit testing. The residents can wear surgical masks to protect others. But not N95s. You know, it would be excessive to be putting a ill-fitting N95 mask on them, especially in the setting of PPE shortages.
0: So let's wrap up the way the way I always try to, which is to identify one thing that our listeners can do. You know, right away. Uh, I don't think that they cannot. If they're starting from zero, they're not going to have uh, an entire respiratory protection program in place in the next hour. Let's say. Um, But what's something they can do today that would make a difference and get them moving in the right direction?
1: My suggestion is quick and easy. Before entering a person's room, do a two-second assessment. Am I wearing the proper equipment?
0: Maybe say a little bit more about that. What, what that, what What kind of answers might I have? How do I know if I'm wearing the proper equipment?
1: Is there a sign on the door alerting me to any particular hazard? Have I done my hand hygiene? Am I wearing a gown if required? And are there any indications that I need to be wearing a respirator rather than a surgical mask?
0: And, and you're right, that is something that we can start doing immediately, takes just a, just a couple of seconds and, and yeah, that'll have a meaningful impact.
2: So I'm gonna say, um, assign someone to the role. Um, Someone who can can champion it and start to look into all of the different pieces of putting a respiratory protection program in place. So once you have that champion, they can go onto the OSHA website and they can begin to assemble the pieces. And then the second thing is if if you've gotten to the point where you know you can do testing is to actually bring the testing in-house instead of having to rely on an outside vendor. Um, I do think that the communities that I've spoken to that have the in-house testing have, have benefited greatly by being able to, to do that on a dime instead of waiting for the vendor to come in. Those would definitely be the two things I would suggest.
1: I, I'd like to mention that it does seem like a huge task and it almost seems discouraging before you've even begun, but there's a lot of guidance from OSHA as Jean mentioned, in fact, their guidelines have a number of checklists that would be very helpful and they're already developed and you can download them and they really are thorough and ensure that there are no gaps in your program.
0: Oh, that's great. That's a great, uh, I think, thing for our uh, for our listeners to go look for on, on the osha.gov site because I think that'll really checklists are a great tool, to, especially when you're trying to, you know, you're trying to boil the ocean. So if we can work through some checklists and, and work down a list, it can really help keep folks on track. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Gene, Maureen, thank you so much for your time today. You can find more publicly available resources for responding to the pandemic on ECRI's COVID-19 Resource Center, and members of all of ECRI services can find additional members-only resources in our Healthcare Recovery Center. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecree-podcasts at ecree.org.